0: My guest today is Ed Finn, the founding director of the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University. At ASU, he's an associate professor in the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the School of Arts, Media, and Engineering. He's also the co-editor of many books, including Future Tense Fiction and Hieroglyph, Stories and Visions for a Better Future. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. Uh, The Center for Science and Imagination at Arizona State University. Why, what, what What? does this institution do? Why does it need to exist? Why is it important? It sounds fairly awesome.
1: It is fairly awesome. I feel like I have one of those really amazing jobs and I'm so excited that I get to keep doing this, this strange and wonderful work. So maybe the best way to answer your question is to tell the the origin story of the center. Uh, it. 2011, uh, the president of ASU, a guy named Michael Crow, who's a very interesting experimental thinker about higher education and is always trying strange new things. He's in Washington, D.C. at an event with the science fiction writer, Neil Stevenson. Neil Stevenson has written this essay called Innovation Starvation, which is a Uh, a polemic really about how he felt like we had lost our ambition and our vision to do big stuff. As a kid, he grew up with the Apollo program, with big national infrastructure projects. The future was Star Trek. It was gonna be optimistic and great. And by the time his generation had become adults, it was like, well, the future is incremental. The future is expensive. The future is probably gonna be really bad. Uh, And we no longer had that same relationship of optimism and that can-do attitude. And so he was sort of delivering a a talk version of this, and Michael Crow, being the kind of guy he is, said, well, Neil, maybe this is actually your fault. You know, instead of telling the scientists and the engineers and the entrepreneurs that they're not thinking big enough, maybe what we need are these stories that set the goalposts, that inspire us to build these really optimistic and exciting futures. Because if you think about the stories we tell about the future, you know, they're the Hollywood blockbuster dystopias, we tell a lot of stories about how bad things are going to be. Uh, And the result is that most people have a really disaffected relationship with the future. You don't feel like there's anything you can do about it. You don't know what the future is going to be like. You don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. And if you do, it's sort of hopeless or maybe, you know, some people in white lab coats or some some people in Silicon (laughs) Valley are going to take care of everything and it's not your problem. So of course, none of those positions are really true. And the conversation that, uh, Michael Crow and Neil Stevenson had started this spark to say, well, what if we tried to change that relationship? What if we tried to give people a sense of agency and responsibility about the future? Because when you really think about it, it's the choices that we all make every day that are going to drive the world we live in. You know, Some of them are big choices, some of them are little choices, but just pretending that your choices don't matter doesn't actually you know, absolve you of that responsibility. You are still making the choices and they're still going to Make, make change. They're going to aggregate into bigger changes. So the center was our response. We said, well, what if we started to change this relationship with the future, modeling it, bringing people together, uh, scientists, engineers, creative writers, storytellers, artists, to come up with technically grounded, optimistic visions of the future. And as we've grown and evolved, we, we think of our mission as creating Inclusive futures, right? To bring more people in, to give them that sense of agency and responsibility, uh, and to inspire collective imagination. So that's how we started, and it's been tremendous fun. Uh, and we were really making it all up as we went along. You know, there's no Department of Imagination out there. Right. There's no uh, there's no playbook, and so we started. Decided we just decided to start with our work. You know, we uh, one of the big projects was hieroglyph, Uh, Neil Stevenson after this conversation started talking to his fellow writers, technologists, other people in his networks to say, well, what if we did a collection of stories that took this idea seriously? That's what sort
0: of led me to you initially, because I ran across those stories.
1: Yeah, and that was uh, a really great flagship project for us to start with, because it was a great calling card. And we we tried to, you know, so this was a book, right? You know, we, you know, and we had a bunch of science fiction writers who were doing their science fiction thing. But we tried to ask everybody to take some creative risks and not just do what they normally do. So the writers, we said, look, we don't want you to just go off to your cave or your writing shack or your workroom or wherever you go to write a story. We actually want you to collaborate with these technical experts and sort of share your ideas with them and work together and and we have some guidelines for you Right. We this is not just sort of write any kind of story you want uh, And neil came up with this idea that there should be no holocausts uh, No hyperdrive and oh gosh, wait, <laughs> I'm blanking on it right now um, It was No hackers. That's right. So uh, no Holocaust, you know, not another apocalypse story, no hyperdrive, no, no imaginary technologies that are not technically plausible. So we wanted all these stories to be grounded in the near future, such that a young person who reads one of them might say, you know, I want to make that thing real. And they might have a shot within their professional lifetime of actually bringing the story to life, to reality. And the no hackers was actually the hardest one to achieve because it suggested Instead of imagining a plucky band of outsiders who are going to rebel against the system and, you know, break all the rules in the, in the classic uh, science fiction tradition, what if we imagined real systemic progress, right, where it's not a revolution, but it's actually making things better as a collective whole? And that was the hardest one for the writers to achieve, uh, because that's not the way Because that, so- we... that sounds like there'll be meetings. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, uh, (laughs) um, yeah, another one of my favorite lines from from Stevenson was a good science fiction story can save you hundreds of hours of meetings and PowerPoints because it puts everybody on the same page. Um, But that's right. And and today I I have to say, if you read the stories in hieroglyph, not many of them really hit that mark because it's so difficult for us, first of all, even to hold, you know, the big system in our heads. Right. Very few people understand how some of these giant. Social technical systems work, and even more difficult if you can understand it to imagine how you would change it to make it better, and certainly to make that palatable and interesting in the story. So, you know, some really interesting challenges there.
0: Um, uh, and this is this is a theme we've hit uh, a little bit in some of our recent podcasts. But uh, you know, if you if you went back to the '60s, uh, you know, there was a you know there was a lot of optimism. There were a lot of You know, I I personally have been going back and I've been rereading whether it's, you know, think tank reports or uh, more sort of serious futurism by science fiction writers. I mean, there are a lot of big predictions of what the world would look like here in 2020. And I think if you transported a lot of those people today, uh, they would not be surprised that like all their all their forecasts have not come true. But I think they might be shocked with just how few of them. Uh, have come true, and I th- and I, I think and I I think they would be, uh, I think they would be depressed by the amount of progress we've made. One, do you do you agree with that? And if so, what do you think happened?
1: It's a really interesting question. I think so. In some ways, what you're saying is totally true because you look at a film like 2001 by Stanley Kubrick, which was made in the 60s, and. You know, we're nowhere close to where he thought and he and Arthur C. Clarke thought we were going to be in 2001, right? We're 20, 20 years beyond that. And in some ways, it feels like our our ambitions in space have, have moved backwards from the from the 1960s. Um, and, 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 you know,
0: it's not, and it's not just space and flying cars. It's really across a, a, a range of sort of technologies, um, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's sort of, you know, cure, it's curing disease you know, life extension and a variety of because oftentimes we'll talk about you know where the flying cars, but it's just, but it, it's just amazing. Sort of the broad range of areas in which they thought life would be wildly different, and it kind of isn't.
1: Yeah, and so I think there's a lesson here, which is that uh, the past never goes away, and everything that we make in the future is just another layer. Just like if you if you look at a city, you know any city that's been around for more than. 100 years has these archaeological layers to it and they're all still in use you know the ancient roman arch is is right next to the starbucks and they're all being you know activated at the same time it's very difficult to actually erase the past the past has a way of coming back to haunt us and so uh the 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 future those futures that they imagined in the 60s we never got rid of all of the problems of the 20th century. All those problems are still here with us, right? Inequality, uh, our reliance on fossil fuels, all these challenges. Uh, and those things will continue to be part of our future uh, for a long time, unless we you know, solve that problem of imagining massive systemic change, which is really, really hard to imagine. Uh, and even history tells us when you have massive systemic change, the past comes back anyway, right? You know, the new, you look at religious change and, you know, we're still putting, dragging trees from the forest into our house every year at Christmas, which is not something that they wrote about in the Bible, right? That is an adaptation of, a, of an older religious tradition into Christianity. So this happens all the time. And uh, I think that the, the other thing is that there has been tremendous transformative change. It's just in areas that very, very few people anticipated. And the big change has been in computation right? Uh, and that's where you look at the bright young minds of this generation. A lot of them are going into startups, into the technology world. And the cynical version of that is, you know, we're, we're pouring all of this energy into making Facebook ads better. Right. Um, uh, but there are some, some, you know, really positive things that have come out of it as well. Uh, but that's, that's the Pandora's box that we've opened for good and for ill, is all of this technological change. And in some ways, we've invested so much of our creative, civilizational capital in that that we're, you know, we haven't solved the problems in the real world. And now we're sort of trying to, trying to solve the problems in the real world by putting a layer of computation over it. And that, that doesn't always solve the problem.
0: There's an interesting study from economist Ray Fair at Yale, which notes that starting around 1970, the US began running big budget deficits and investing less in infrastructure in ways that other countries didn't. He concludes that America became less future-oriented after the 1960s. And when I look at how we've neglected the space program, allowed for declines in science investment, instituted regulations that make it hard to build infrastructure, how we failed to do much of anything about climate change and we're unprepared for this pandemic, I don't know. I start to think he's right. Now, Fair doesn't say why he thinks this happened, just that something changed. Around 1970, our society no longer behaves in a future-oriented manner.
1: I find that really interesting, and it's something I've thought about a bit. I don't have a pat explanation for you know what might have changed in, say, the 70s or 80s. And of course, some people will tell you, no, no, it was earlier. No, no, it was later. But uh, you know, I think about uh, Kurt Vonnegut saying, "Why is there no uh, secretary for the future in the cabinet? Right? Why is there no institutional space for thinking about the long term in, uh, at least in, in the United States?" And I do think that there are cultural differences around this Uh, if you look at Europe There's a lot more investment in this idea that futures is a is a word that you could put into serious government documents and that they're willing to put money into Uh, In Japan, there's been a lot of thinking about that Uh, China is a, a country that tends to think in long long term, you know decades long terms and For whatever reason we aren't doing that right now in the United States and I agree with you that it's it's not really part of our uh, Cultural DNA and and I think it needs to be I think about this in terms of imagination Mm -hmm. and we need to create more space for imagination uh, Because imagination is is what you need It's the ignition system for all this stuff that we we know we care about, you know innovation creativity um It's an imagination is what allows us to avoid failures of imagination right like we we knew the playbook We knew exactly how this pandemic was going to roll out from hundreds of expert studies and war games and movies and 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 books And yet somehow we couldn't we couldn't put the pieces together, right? We couldn't anticipate effectively what to do and to take decisive action at the right times Um, But imagination is also the ignition system for empathy and caring about other people. I've been interested in the pandemic to see how suddenly, maybe for the first time, millions of people are making these choices on behalf of strangers, you know, changing their behavior so that maybe somebody else doesn't get sick. So we need to foster imagination, especially in young people. Uh, you know we celebrated in little kids and then we pound it out of, out of everybody through formal education And then when they're grown-ups, we say well, why aren't you more like Steve Jobs? Why aren't you more like Margaret Atwood or Yael Stevenson?" right? So we have this um, very uh, contradictory relationship with this uh, With this capacity, but I think it's it's one that everybody has and if we're going to survive the 21st century not you know as a, as a species as a nation as communities Uh, we need to build that capacity up and make sure everybody feels empowered to imagine their own futures.
0: Yeah, this reminds me of Edmund Phelps' book, Mass Flourishing, where he ends on the same issue. Are we teaching kids to have a sense of discovery and curiosity? And I'm not sure he had great solutions, though he felt maybe kids should read more swashbuckling adventures like he did when he was a kid. So how do we instill this sense of wonder and curiosity and also risk-taking? I'm already concerned that the pandemic will make us a more risk-averse society and decrease the rate of, say, company creation and geographic mobility. So how do we make sure that we're still a risk-taking, imaginative society?
1: So that's a great question. And, and honestly, that is my next five years, is thinking through what do we do about this imagination deficit? And this is something that you'll see economists and philosophers talking about. You'll see people active in the Black Lives Black Lives Matter movement talking about, you know, everybody's interested in this question of what imagination is and how do we use it to make the world better. Um, But there are a few things I can say now. Another thing that's really key to that, that imagination does for us is resilience. Imagination is part of what makes amazing human beings carry on in the face of impossible odds and inspire other people to follow them. If you think about somebody like Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi, they were inspirational. Uh, You know uh, Users of imagination right and they could motivate themselves and others to do seemingly impossible things. How do you teach that? Well, you have to first create that space where people can fail right people feel comfortable failing and the stakes of failure are uh, Are not catastrophic and not traumatic right and so in terms of the you could call it the risk economy I think we need to think about how how risk is already allocated because you think about, you know, the, the kid from a, a, an affluent family who goes to college and takes, takes a risk on doing some crazy thing or, you know, does a Mark Zuckerberg and drops out of college. The risk that that kid takes is ultimately a safer risk than if somebody who, you know, grew up in poverty and is on some kind of a scholarship and got into college, you know, if they take that risk. It's a different risk profile. So we need to think about how we create the, you know, the I don't know what the right metaphor here is, like the wrestling map so that people, or, you know, the gymnastics mat, so that people can take these leaps and if they don't time it right, they don't break their necks. Uh, and that's a really tricky question. And then the other piece that I'd say in terms of education is we have to remember that imagination is not about individuals. It's also about collectives that people imagine together. And if you think about all of the great inventors and researchers and innovators that we celebrate, you know, there's a myth that we build up around them that they do this all as individuals, but it's always a team effort. And the ideas circulate and great things, calculus, sonar, you know, they get invented multiple times by multiple people because there's a kind of gestalt and a dialogue of ideas circulate. By the way, ideas circulate between science fiction and science as well. But we need to foster that and think about how we support groups and communities in doing imagination and working with one another.
0: And, and, and to, to be clear, if I understand what you're saying, uh, you know, on this issue of sort of, you know, have we become, you know, less future-oriented, more pessimistic? And it's very, and one thing when people discuss this topic, they'll do just what we did earlier, which, you know, they'll point to some of these, you know, kind of optimistic, uh, movies, you know, or books from the sixties. And then all of a sudden in the seventies, you started getting all these dystopian things, whether it's, uh, uh, soiling green, you know, you you know, planet of the apes movies, uh, you know, there, there's a bunch of, and even, and even though you'll still see some positive movies, most movies are fairly negative about, uh, about the future. So that kind of, I, so you can view that as sort of a reflection, I guess, of our attitude, but you think that, but you think that it's also important. That That, as far as having that kind of Im- an image of how it all works out, you know to the better, not perfect, but that we have some sort of image about where we're going. so that when we so when we talk about the need for technological progress, it's not just because we want a bunch of great gadgets that that it's kind of connected to some sort of larger purpose that will make our lives better other than just having better phones on our cameras.
1: Absolutely. So I like to think about this as thoughtful optimism. The work we do at the center is not about uh, Magical rainbows and unicorns thinking where everything is just going to be great Uh, The work that we do is to try to imagine positive futures that still have their problems and their flaws, right? the the past comes into these futures And it's not like everybody is happy all the time because that makes for really boring stories Um, there are real problems and real conflicts but there's this idea that if we think about the future, we can change it for the better. If we explore the full possibility space, and that's the thoughtfulness part. Um, And we might not all agree right, on what that better future looks like. And that's why this exercise is so important. We need to have the stories to explore these possibilities and have some of these debates about what we really want. Because ultimately, every Conversation about the future is also a conversation about the present and the past. Right, they're connected, and we're always projecting the things we know about what's happening now and what has happened into these dreams, these visions of what we'd like to happen. So I think the exercise is really important. And if the only stories you tell are the dark ones, then you're sending this message that the the the, the better future is inaccessible or impossible or not important. Right, um, and the dystopias are important too. You know, I, I, 1984 is an incredibly important book. Mm-hmm. There are many very important dystopias and those warnings are valuable and we need to hang on to them. But we have lots of those stories and we tend to repeat them over and over again. And we don't have as nearly as many of those optimistic narratives that say, well, here's something we could be working towards.
0: So to wrap up, what story do you tell yourself that isn't about an apocalypse or a dystopian wasteland? And also isn't something so far in the future, like the singularity, that it's incomprehensible. What are the stories you think about their optimistic, forward-thinking, and still relatable to people today and how we imagine tomorrow?
1: Well, one, one author that I like to point to who, who really articulates this view and has been doing it for decades is Kim Stanley Robinson, who writes very technically grounded stories, but also takes these leaps and, and he imagines positive futures. So a couple of his books come to mind. So one is New York 2140, which uh, in, if you read it just as an environmental novel, you'd say, wow, the future is gonna be really bad because you know, the sea level is gonna rise and it's gonna cause all of these problems. But the novel is not a pessimistic novel. It's about humans adapting and New York becomes a kind of Venice and there are a lot of beautiful things as well as you know, lots of suffering. Uh, So I really like that. And another one of his books, 2312, is set farther in the future and imagines humans occupying the solar system and building a real kind of solar system level civilization and economy. And so he takes those leaps. Right. And he imagines what life might be like for good and for ill and all of the conflicts that we carry with us from the present. And so, you know, that's the that's the kind of storytelling that I think we need more of that um, takes seriously the possibility of positive change, and then explores its second and third order effects. Um, One of the tragedies of our world right now is that even the people who are fighting for positive change, you know, let's look at uh, climate change, for example, there are all these people, uh, policy people, scientists around the world, uh, you know, doing these big climate meetings and, and international discussions and, and accords uh, Most of them don't really know what the positive future looks like what the victory condition looks like and we need more concrete visions of that You know, you need to inspire people with what is going to be beautiful and great about this future where We're using where we're reducing our reliance on fossil fuels and we're addressing uh, you know, Carbon and all of that instead of the, the narrative. That's like you have to stop what you're doing. This is bad. This is wrong um, you know and, and to to lead with the positive ideas instead of the negative ideas and positive visions rather than negative visions is surprisingly difficult and I think it's easier to be a critic than it is to be a you know a positive a positivist and an advancer of a vision um, and so you again it's about creating that that safety net that safe space for people to be willing to take those risks and to say you know it's okay to to do this and it's okay to be wrong you know you might and this is why so few science fiction writers write near future fiction because you know in five years your book is going to be proven completely wrong right uh so very few right, people, then people you know,
0: then I, people mock you as this like the uh, the writers and <laughs> these forecasts from the 60s who rather than predicting uber or Lyft, they predicted we'd be chauffeured to airports by like uh enhanced enhanced orangutans or something
1: Right, and 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 honestly, that's just as ridiculous as the people who um, you know spend a lot of time celebrating science fiction writers for being oracles and seers because it's it's the same thing. It's it's really not the point of science fiction. They weren't trying to predict the future. Um, They're trying to do this extrapolating and uh, exploring the possibility space. And it's more important to think about the things that might happen rather than to try to place your bets on you know one particular thing happening.
0: My guest today has been Ed Finn. Ed Finn, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.